You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. Dr. George will be covering chapter 12 through chapter 13, verse 12, which will include the following three topics. Peter's imprisonment by King Herod and deliverance. Second, the Holy Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas for his work. And third, Paul's treatment of Elymas the magician. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George covering Peter's imprisonment by King Herod. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 12, in beginning his narrative about the imprisonment and deliverance of Peter, that it was about this time that King Herod started persecuting certain members of the church. He had James, the brother of John, beheaded, and when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he went on to arrest Peter as well. It would be helpful to us to keep in mind that in the New Testament, there are three Herods. The first, of course, is Herod the Great, and he is the Herod who reigned at the time of Christ's birth, Herod the Great. And he was a kind of megalomaniac, as historians will say. He was consumed with grandeur and wealth and power. And although all of the reigning Herods were identified as Jews, they even practiced Judaism, they were a kind of political puppet for the Roman Empire. The Herods were satellite kings under the Romans, and so their power, their authority, depended upon the Caesars. That's why they always wanted to make sure that they were in good standing with the different Caesars. Caesar essentially means lord. He's like a lord, beginning with Julius Caesar. Caesar was a title used for the emperor, for the Roman emperor. So the first of the Herods that we encounter is King Herod, Herod the Great. All of the Herods were, were corrupt to varying degrees. They were aggressive, they were cunning and manipulative, they were constantly trying to establish themselves through political posturing to be in good standing both with the Jewish elders, particularly those who themselves were corrupt and interested in power, as well as the Roman procurators, the authority of the Romans in Israel or in Palestine. It is Herod the Great who then built the Great Temple, 
the temple that we associate with Jesus' own life. The one that was standing that had been built, as St. John records of Jesus' own words, of the conversation that Jesus has with his apostles that's recorded in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. When Jesus is talking about, he is saying, destroy this temple, because he is prophesying the destruction of the Jewish temple, but he is actually referring to the temple of his body. And those who hear this are amazed because they say, it has taken 46 years to build the temple. That temple was built by Herod the Great as a sort of monument to himself. He wanted to be the greatest king there ever was. He wanted to build something that would give him immortality. When the Magi come, because they have been informed by the Spirit through divine revelation that a king has been born, and that he will be a great king, and so they go, and Herod questions them. Herod also knows the prophets, and when he finds out that it is this king, he considers Jesus, the infant king, to be his rival. It is Herod the Great who then orders the massacre of the innocents, that all male children at the age of two and under be killed in the whole of Palestine. That is Herod the Great. The second Herod that we encounter in the New Testament is Herod Antipas, who is a son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had arranged that after his death, the massive territory that he ruled over be divided into four parts. And that is why it was then called the Tetrarchy at the time of Christ. Now, of course, part of it went to Herod Philip, one of his sons. Part of it went, the lion's share went to Archelaus. And in fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian tells us that Archelaus actually got half, two of the four sections, but it was still called a tetrarchy. But Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, was the one who was reigning at the time of Jesus's public ministry at the time of Christ's passion. And so when scripture refers to Herod, the tetrarch, he was one of the four rulers, Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, that is the second Herod. The third Herod is this one we encounter in our lesson today. King Herod was, he was referred to as king, and this is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was a grandson of Herod the Great, but he was a nephew of Herod Antipas. He was one of the most aggressive of the Herods, and he was a favorite of the emperor at that time, Caligula. And we know historically about Caligula an evil emperor, a very wicked emperor. And because they were great friends, Caligula bestowed on Herod officially the title of king, which was sort of unprecedented. The Herods are called king because they reigned as kings over the Jewish people. They reigned as kings in that area. But they had to be very careful that they deferred to the Caesars as the true lords, so to speak. They were called the Caesars. But Caligula actually officially bestowed upon Herod Agrippa the title of king. And he was completely full of himself, his own sense of his authority, his power. He too was ruthless. We find out, of course, that he, because the Jews are putting pressure on him, that he imprisons and has beheaded James, the brother of John. Now, James and John, we know, are the sons of Zebedee, and James is one of the twelve apostles. He is the first martyr 
of the apostles, the first one to die for Christ. And he is the only apostle whose martyrdom is actually testified to in the New Testament. And scripture says, because this pleased the Jews, because the Jews are trying to crush Christianity, they are trying to crush the way of Christ. So he also takes Peter. James and Peter would have been very prominent figures who were drawing many people to the way of Christ. He imprisons Peter, but because it's the time of the Passover, he didn't want the kind of rioting on hand that they had. They certainly remembered what happened at the time of Christ. He has Peter in prison and says he will bring him to trial afterwards. Now, the kind of trial that Herod would have, would have run, as we know from what happens with James, it was an unjust trial, an unfair trial, if we can even call it a trial at all. So Peter, as the Christian community are well aware, is probably headed for death himself because for almost no reason whatsoever, James has been beheaded. Now, this Herod, who reigned only for a short time, a matter of about three years, as St. Luke will go on to say, we find this at the end of chapter 12, after the incident with Peter, which we are going to talk about here in a few minutes, after the miraculous deliverance of Peter and the king's order, that all of the guards, who would have numbered not fewer than 16 guards, according to what Scripture tells us, were all executed because Peter was miraculously delivered by the Lord. They were innocent, but he had them all killed. He then goes to Caesarea on the coast. And Caesarea was the capital. It was a large and important city at that time. And Josephus tells us it would have been at the games probably of Claudius because Claudius was the emperor to follow Caligula. And at these games, it's written historically, we have it in scripture, what occurred is that he addressed himself in robes that were glittering, that caught the light of the sun. The cloth must have been something like lame, which we have today. The cloth is made of natural fiber, but there are threads of metal or gold, silver or gold, metal threads woven into it. So when the person is outside, the sun catches and reflects it. So he must have been resplendent. And he goes into the stadium, and the people declare, as Josephus tells us, you are no longer a man. We see that you are not mortal. You are a god. You are immortal. St. Luke says, a day was fixed, and Herod is going into the stadium to oversee the games. Wearing his robes of state and seated on a throne, began to make a speech to them, and the people acclaimed him with, it is a God speaking, not a man. And at that moment, now what Josephus says is that he allowed the people to worship him. He allowed the people to pay homage to him, to call him a God. He stopped no one. He corrected no one. He accepted the title of God. St. Luke records, and at that moment, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he had not given the glory to God. He was eaten away by worms and died. He was struck down instantly. He doubled over, as Josephus tells us, with great pains in his stomach, in his abdomen. And he was taken away and he died a painful and grueling death only a few days later. That then is the end of Herod Agrippa. Now to back up, this is the Herod who has beheaded James and who has imprisoned Peter and fearing, remembering what has happened, not many years before, 
with the apostles when they are miraculously delivered from their imprisonment in a public jail. We encountered that narrative in chapter 5 of Acts of the Apostles. The people also didn't forget what happened with the empty tomb, how heavily guarded the tomb was because they didn't want the body of Christ to be taken away because they knew Christ had said he would be raised up. They wanted to secure the body in that tomb to make sure that what Christ had said in prophecy could not happen. So they were aware that strange things could take place through powers that were outside their knowledge and power. Now, King Herod then assigns, St. Luke tells us, four sections of four soldiers each, at least 16 guards, to guard Peter. St. Luke goes on to say that it was on the night before Herod was to try him. Peter was sleeping between two of the soldiers, fastened with two chains. He was shackled to the soldiers. Now, they did this sometimes to prevent anything from, from going wrong. The angel of the Lord comes, and in the midst of this, St. Luke says, a great light shone, and the shackles simply fell away, freeing him, liberating him. And the angel then, while the guards remain sleeping, the angel takes him and walks him past the guards who don't stir, unlocks the doors. As he goes through one door and then to an outside door, the door simply, St. Luke says, opened as they approach them. Now, this whole idea of imprisonment and deliverance is a theme near and dear to the Lord himself. We find it in divine revelation frequently. We find it many times in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. Why? Why this theme? God, through this, anytime he speaks to us in a repetitive way, in figures, in signs, in types of things, he wants us to understand certain lessons, truths behind this. And what God is telling us is that he protects his servants who are imprisoned by a hostile world. The imprisonment is symbolic of the enemies of the Lord who want to silence the word from being proclaimed, who want to shackle God's faithful servants and bind them up so they cannot go forth, so they cannot use their hands to do the Lord's work. Their feet are shackled so that they cannot go about the world, bringing the word of God, and so they are bound up. God, however, guarantees his protection, and that protection often comes in the scriptures in the form of angels. He protects his servant and also delivers his servant. Now, we have many instances of a miraculous deliverance, but we also know that in, in salvation history, there are those who actually die in prison. There are martyrs in the age of the church who weren't delivered. What God does, whether he physically, literally delivers a person or does not, he is using the faithful servant who has surrendered his or her life over to the Lord to speak to the world, to speak about his power, his glory, to get his message out there. God is always proclaiming his message even through the suffering and death of his servants. In fact, we can say in a more eloquent and powerful way, the truth about God is proclaimed through those who are willing to suffer and die for the Lord. So we have this beautiful theme of imprisonment. What are we to learn from this? Because there is a way in which 
a hostile world wants to shackle us, silence us, imprison us. First of all, we must trust in the Lord. And he is constantly telling his servants this. Jesus himself asks for childlike abandonment to the providence of the Heavenly Father. So that we need not even say, where will we get clothes to wear? Where will we get food to eat? Where will we get something to drink? He says, your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. To trust him that he has his eye on us, on all of us, and he takes care of all of our needs. The church understands that we must walk as church, as servants of the Lord. We must walk in the footsteps of Christ. We must walk the way that Christ himself has shown us. And what is that way? It's a way of, of poverty and obedience, of service, and of self-sacrifice. Of self-sacrifice, the sacrifice of our life, handing it over to the Lord even if that means sacrifice to the point of death. That is, after all, the very model that Christ himself has given us. This is why when the Lord reveals himself in the vision to St. John, what he records in the book of Revelation, the Son of Man appears and he speaks to him and he says, write down everything you are shown and the words that are spoken to you, because the words spoken are instructions for the seven churches. Now, those instructions, which we find in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, are instructions for us. They're the fullness of instructions for the universal church for all ages. And what is it that the Lord reveals in the vision when he says, speak to the church in Smyrna? Now that message sort of encapsulates the Christian life of suffering and death, what the Lord calls us to do. And what is it the Lord says? He tells us, do not be afraid of the sufferings that are coming to you. Look, the devil will send some of you to prison to put you to the test. Even if you have to die, keep faithful, and I will give you the crown of life for your prize. Let anyone who can hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. For those who prove victorious will come to no harm through the second death. The second death is our physical death. We have two deaths we must pass through. The first is the difficult death, because it is eternal death. It is the eternal death that is ours through the fall. So, we pass through the death of Christ, which we do in baptism, in the baptismal waters. We pass through the death of Christ. We enter the death of Christ, through whom we enter eternal life. In other words, we put to death in us the life of sin, the former way of life. And as long as we remain in Christ, in the Paschal mystery of Christ, when we pass through the second death, we will pass through it unscathed. We will be assured of entering eternal life. This is why the second death can't harm us. It is a paradox that in the Christian life, with life of people in the world, we tend to look at the first death as small, as inconsequential. We tend to forget about the magnitude of what it is that happens in that first death we pass through in the person of Christ. That's a difficult one. We don't always see it that way because Christ took on the difficulty of it. He suffered everything that had to be suffered in passing through that death for us, for our sake. 
Now he's made it simple for us. We pass through it in the waters of baptism. The second death, then, can't touch us. It can't harm us. And yet so many people are afraid of the second death. They fear it. They have anxiety about it. But if we remain in Christ, we are, we, we are safe. The second death can't harm us. That is the message here. So regardless of whether we are imprisoned, how much we must suffer, if we have to die in prison, if we are martyred, that can't harm us. The apostles see this, and the church understands this. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing Peter's imprisonment and deliverance, and then she will move into The Holy Spirit Sets Apart Saul and Barnabas for His Work. And now, back to Dr. George. Secondly, God gives us angels as protectors on earth. Divine revelation, sacred scripture, is filled with examples, illustrations of God revealing to us the presence of angels, the mysterious and powerful presence of our angels. God has placed the angels as our guardians in this life. Every person has a guardian angel. The angels are powerful. They are superior to us in power and in enlightenment. They, like we, are persons. They are spiritual persons. We are human persons. Angel, which is what we call them, angel is the name of their office. That's what they do. They are angels. They are messengers. They are mediators between God and the material order, the created order. And they are at our service. They are persons, spiritual persons, who are here to serve human persons, and they're glad to do it because this is their work in the Lord. They are to help us to get to heaven because they look, as Jesus says, upon the face of his heavenly Father. We have all been given a guardian angel who has been with us from the moment of our creation in our mother's womb and has never left us and will be with us even as we pass through our death. There is no one here whose guardian angel has not done something, many things, for us already today. Already today. Our angels were with us when we woke up. Our angels were with us throughout the night. And our angels have been guiding us, correcting us, consoling us, enlightening us already today in ways that are so subtle, so spiritual, that we often are unaware of the help God gives us through our angels and the protection. If God desires to deliver us from prison, as he does Peter, if it is not his will that we be harmed or that we lose our life in a particular situation, it won't happen. It can't happen. He gives his angels commands about us that God's will might be done. It was God's will that Stephen be martyred that day so that God's purposes could be fulfilled in his church. It was not God's will that Peter be martyred by King Herod. It was God's will that he be martyred later in his life. And so he was martyred in the fulfillment of God's time. So we must trust in God. We must remember that we have angels as our protectors. 
And third and finally, we must be aware of the power of intercessory prayer in the church. St. Luke tells us in verse 5, All the time that Peter was under guard, the church, of course, had just seen what happened to James, and they were expecting the same to happen to Peter. The church prayed to God for him unremittingly. The church prayed unremittingly that God would spare Peter's life. He was the chief shepherd. He was the head of the church, their leader. What is it when Peter is delivered? He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. The people are assembled there in prayer, praying intensely. Intercession is a prayer of petition, as the church tells us, which leads us to pray as Jesus did. Jesus is the great intercessor. He is the one and only intercessor. But because he has taken our humanity to himself and given us his spirit, when we pray, we pray to the Father in and through and with Jesus Christ. Our prayer is heard. Our prayer is powerful. Christ prayed on earth. He did not pray for himself. He prayed for us. And he is our leader in prayer. And so we pray in Christ. In intercessory prayer, as the church tells us, he who prays looks not only to his own interests. Now we can pray for ourselves. But intercessory prayer is very powerful. It even, it even profits us in a certain way because by praying for others, we are praying with true charity, out of true concern for others. And not only praying for the interests of others, but praying even for those who bring us harm. Undoubtedly, the church, the praying church, was praying not only for Peter, but for the soldiers who were placed as guard over Peter and for Herod himself. Herod has all of the guard, all the soldiers executed, but we, we don't know the mysterious ways in which God prepared those soldiers for their death, a wrongful death for sure, because they had had an encounter with Peter. There are many stories in the history of the church where there are bishops, there are holy servants of God who are imprisoned, and they convert their guard. They convert their guard to the Lord because they have direct contact with them. They talk with them. They convert them by their example, their gentleness, their meekness, their humility, their love. And so, certainly, this must have happened with regard to Peter. When Peter is in prison, the angel comes to him, and it's interesting what he says. He says, put on your belt and your sandals, he instructs Peter. And then he says, wrap your cloak round you and follow me, which is what Peter does. Here again, there are no details in Scripture that are there just to fill out the narrative. Every detail in Scripture is something pointing to a spiritual, a greater reality. We are reminded of what the Lord says through his servant Paul. This comes at the end of the letter to the Ephesians. The Lord himself says through Paul, So stand your ground with truth as a belt around your waist. Now the angel is instructing Peter, put your belt back on so that you have truth around your waist in what you proclaim and how you live your life. With truth as a belt around your waist, and uprightness as your breastplate, and wearing for shoes on your feet the eagerness to spread the gospel. The angel tells Peter, put your shoes on. The shoes are freedom. It is not only freedom, but 
the shoes are symbolic of his eagerness to go forth and to spread the gospel. When Peter arrives at the house of Mary and all those who are assembled together praying, it is almost humorous when Rhoda, one of the servants, comes to the door and he knocks on it. So surprised is she and so unexpected that it will be Peter that she closes the door and leaves Peter standing outside. They think that the servant has seen an angel. The church fathers, in speaking of this, point out that the very fact that these people who lived in sincerity of heart and in truth believed that she had seen an angel and seen Peter is yet another indicator that we find in Scripture. The fact that God, throughout salvation history, shows angels to us in human form when he wants to have the angel appear to deliver us, to speak to us, to protect us. In this case, of course, it's truly Peter, but they think that it is an angel who has come in the form of Peter. It's a very beautiful moment. At the beginning of chapter 13, St. Luke is preparing us for the first missionary journeys of the church, in particular through Saul and through Barnabas. And what he tells us is that at the church in Antioch, he begins chapter 13, in the church at Antioch, we see that the emphasis has now moved from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, which, as we pointed out in earlier lessons, was growingly an important church within the universal church in the early life of Christianity. And so there is this shift from the church in Jerusalem to the church at Antioch, and there were prophets and teachers there, a group consisting in this particular instance of Barnabas and of Saul and also Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and interestingly, a man by the name of Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, a friend of Herod the Tetrarchs, who now is a devout Christian. What stories he could have told of his childhood and what an amazing witness that he converts to Christianity. Now they were prophets and teachers and it was this group that had entered into a period of time of fasting and intense prayer. And St. Luke says that they were worshiping and keeping a fast when the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now that is a critical piece of information. Down through the age of the church, the church frequently in periods of, of intense prayer and fasting, it is a time of preparation for the church to hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Prayer and fasting, periods of prayer and fasting, of which Advent and Lent are those for us, we fast in certain ways, are times of preparation. There are times when we empty our hearts of worldly things, we empty our hearts of attachments to things of the world, and even of sinful inclinations, of vices, we fast from things. We can fast from sin or from imperfection. For example, if someone spends a lot of time on the phone or in front of the television, they can go through a period where they fast from that in order to correct what they do to excess. Or we can fast from things which are completely legitimate and not sinful. For example, to have dessert at the end of a meal. But we can fast from these things to empty our hearts, so to speak to detach ourselves from the things of the world, to empty our mind, to clear our mind, to purify our heart, 
and therein to make room for a fuller indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we can be inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit. So it is no coincidence that it is precisely in this period of time of fasting and prayer that this group of prophets and teachers hear the Holy Spirit speak to them, saying, I want Barnabas and Saul to be set apart for the work to which I have called them. Now the Holy Spirit, the Lord, is revealing that he wants Barnabas and Saul to be sent out. This is going to be the first of the three famous missionary journeys of Paul. The first one, Saul, whose name we shortly discover that he starts going by the name of Paul. Barnabas and Paul embark on this missionary journey, taking with them John Mark, who will not finish it. He ends up leaving them later. And what we find out happens is the suffering. There's too much hostility. There's rejection of the gospel. They have hard times. They live in poverty. The traveling is grueling and difficult. And John Mark, partway through the first missionary journey, decides to leave and he goes back home. So then when he wants to go the second time and Barnabas pleads his case for him because Barnabas and John Mark are cousins, Paul says, no, he left on the first one. He's not going to go with. They later, of course, are reconciled. John Mark probably had some growing to do in that purification of heart and in being immersed in the paschal mystery of the Lord so that he could embrace his cross in life. And of course, he goes on to to be good friends with Paul. We know this from reading the New Testament. Spends years working diligently with Peter in Rome. He is a co-worker with Peter. And in fact, we, in reading the Gospel of St. Mark, appreciate the fact that we are hearing, in a certain sense, the Gospel of Peter. Because Mark heard Peter preach the Gospel so many times. Certainly, Peter's preaching is what comprises a good part of the Gospel of Mark. Mark, of course, just as Luke, are not of the original twelve. Of the four evangelists, only two are apostles. Mark and Luke are not. But what's beautiful about that is that who are the two figureheads in the early church? We look back now at Peter and Paul. Well, Mark, in a sense, records the Gospel of Peter, and Luke, who traveled with and knew Paul very well, records what would have been, so to speak, the kerygma he proclaimed, the gospel Paul would have proclaimed. It's very beautiful. The Lord is always having everything come together in order and harmony. So, the Holy Spirit reveals that he has set them apart for this particular work. And what does this group do? They re-enter into intense fasting, more fasting and prayer, in preparation of the work. Now, this is something that we can learn from this important role of prayer and fasting. And the fasting can even be in small ways, in hidden ways. But it's this desire to purify our hearts for the Lord, for the work that he has given us to do so that we can hear the voice of the Lord. And at this time of fasting and prayer, St. Luke tells us, they laid their hands on them, on Barnabas and Saul, and sent them off in their missionary journey. The laying on of hands. In Scripture, if we go back to the beginning, the Old Testament, God has been speaking about hand, about the power of hand from the beginning. He speaks of his own hand. He speaks of the hand of God, of the arm of God, the arm which stretches out, and the power that is in his hand, the power to save, 
the power to deliver, the power to touch every single thing, every course of event in the world. So in the Old Testament, he is speaking about hand from ancient times, many civilizations, and certainly this was true in Israel, the people understood that the hand, the extension of the hand over a person or an object was symbolic. It was a symbolic gesture. It dedicated or set apart that object, that person. It placed upon the head of that person, so to speak, a good will, a wish, a prayer, a petition to God for blessing. So there was this sense in this, even among, even among the Israelites. Jacob, we recall in the Old Testament, through the laying on of hands, blesses, he bestows his blessing and inheritance upon the sons of Joseph. Moses, in handing over the Israelites, the people of God, to Joshua, because Moses knows he is not going to be able to take them into the promised land, so he hands over, he hands over to Joshua, he entrusts to Joshua the Israelites so that he will take them into the promised land. Joshua, of course, is a figure of Jesus then. Moses can't enter the promised land. And so what God is saying is that it is Joshua, the figure of Jesus, to whom is given the Israelites, and he will bring them into the promised land. Even the Israelites, however, would extend their hands over sacrificial victims. When they would take victims, they could purchase a pair of turtle doves, for example, a lamb, for the priest to offer and sacrifice. There were different times in the rites and ceremonies of Israel, and the people themselves could extend their hand over that victim as if to say it was like an extension of themselves. Now, the priest, in extending his hand over the goat, once a year in the rite of expiation to place all the sins of the people to sort of gather them together and place them on this goat which they would send out into the desert to be with the demons, so to speak. They were trying to expiate or get rid of their sins through this symbolic gesture. But if it was an offering of an animal that the priests would offer in the temple, the people would place their hand on that offering as if to say, this represents my offering of myself to the Lord. It could be then an act of adoration, of thanksgiving, of worship to God. And in handing over themselves to the Lord as a sacrifice or offering through this animal, they asked God to return his blessings and gifts upon them. This concept is present already in the early church. Of course it is, because because the early church is Judeo-Christian, and they understood this idea of the extension and imposition of the hands. Jesus blessed with his hands. The Gospels are filled with examples of what Jesus does with his hands. He blesses the children. He raises the dead with his hands. He cures with his hands. He gives sight to the blind with his hands. When Jesus ascends into heaven, the scripture says, he put his hands over the people and blessed them as he ascended into heaven. Now it's very mysterious. The Jews knew that God had spoken of doing things with his hands, but God is spirit. And they could not have imagined that God actually would really have hands. But God becomes man. The Word incarnate has hands. And the church, in speaking of this mystery, says in one of the paragraphs, it's a beautiful paragraph, 292 in the Catechism, 
says that the Old Testament suggests, because the Old Testament revelation is, of course, imperfect and provisional, but the New Covenant reveals the creative action of the Son and the Spirit inseparably one with the Father. Whatever the Father does from the beginning of time, from all eternity, the Son and Spirit do. The three persons in one God are always working together. Where one is at work, the other two, of course, are present and at work at work equally. There exists but one God. He is the Father, God the Creator. He made all things by himself, one God. That is, the church says, by his word and by his wisdom. Now the church is careful to put capital W's there, by his word, the word incarnate, and by his wisdom, divine wisdom, by his son, and by his spirit. That is, so to speak, by his hands. Very beautiful image, by his hands. So God from all eternity is speaking about his two hands, so to speak, the Son and the Spirit. Very beautiful. But we have this fulfilled in the Word incarnate, the person of Christ. How interesting that a world hostile to the Word of God would nail the hands of God to the cross. And God would save us with his hands nailed to the cross. It is important for us to hear the words of Jesus as he dies. What does he say? He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is the prayer of the martyrs. It's the prayer of Stephen. We cannot be touched even if the world nails our hands to the cross. Peter died with his hands tied, roped to the cross. He also was crucified, though upside down. But he was proclaiming the gospel most eloquently in his death. And God was working powerfully while he was tied to that cross. It's an amazing thing. Now, in the age of the church, the age of the New Testament, the apostles have been given a privileged share in the work of those hands of Christ. They are configured to Christ in his priesthood. The hands of a priest are sacred. They're sacred in a special and unique way. This is why it is through the imposition of hands in the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and holy orders through the bishop that the sacraments have a particular imposition of the hands that is part of the rite of those sacraments. That imposition of hands is not the same as the more common imposition of hands that we share in, in virtue of our baptismal priesthood. We share in the priesthood of Christ too, not the ministerial priesthood, but we share in a common priesthood. We share in the priesthood of Christ. Therefore, we too, our hands are holy, and we are called to bless and to be a blessing in the world. This is why we can, although only priests or deacons can bless persons, formally speaking, strictly speaking, but we can all bless. Parents, of course, can indeed bless their children through the laying on of the hand of the mother or father upon the head of the child. There's a special blessing that goes with that because they're the parents of that child. But we can bless others in the world. We do it all the time. If we're parting ways from a friend who is about to go on a trip, and as we say goodbye, we even hold up our hand and say, God bless you. God be with you. There is a sense 
in the way we are created. We do it almost naturally, and yet it is something that is a participation in the life of grace. It's a very powerful thing, this matter of, of the hands. We are aware that this extension of the hand is an unmistakable sign of the outpouring, the gifts, the bestowal of grace, of blessings of God upon the person. It's really a beautiful prayer. It's sort of a momentary prayer, a fleeting prayer, but to say to someone, God bless you, is to call upon them. It's an act of love and an act of faith and hope. And it calls upon that person the blessings, the very blessings of God. So it is this kind of laying on of hands in a powerful way, active and at work in the church in the early days when the Holy Spirit reveals that the prophets and teachers, through the laying on of hands, are to send Barnabas and Saul off on this first missionary journey. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will cover Paul's treatment of Elymas the magician. And now, back to Dr. George. The final question of our lesson deals with the first incident on the first missionary journey of Saul, whom St. Luke now refers to as Paul, and from this point forward to the end of Acts of the Apostles, he is Paul. It was not unusual for people in the ancient world to have a name. The Jews, in particular, often had a Hebrew name, but then to take a name that was either Greek or later that was Roman or Latin, it was a name that the world could speak and could understand. We have some of that even happening nowadays. There are some languages in which it's difficult for us to pronounce or remember those names, and so people will give us an equivalent in a language that, that we understand, our own language. So this kind of thing will still go on. Now, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark depart from Antioch. Antioch was in ancient Syria, now what is southern Turkey. The city of Antioch still essentially goes by the same name, Antioch, in Turkey, in southern Turkey. And they went down to the port, which is Seleucia, about 20 miles from Antioch, boarded a ship, and sailed for Cyprus. Cyprus, as you know, is the largest island in the eastern Mediterranean. They land on the eastern shore at Salamis, and they begin proclaiming the word. And just as they do throughout, they first go into the synagogues. Why? Because Paul wants his Jewish brothers and sisters to understand that the Messiah, for whom they had waited all these centuries, has come, and that they can share in his life, that the Lord and King is here, no longer visible, but indeed still here with us. And time and again, he goes into the synagogues, and he meets with rejection and hostility and is forced out, and in some places they hate him so much they hunt him down from town to town because they want to kill him. They're so angered by the good news which he is proclaiming. The remainder of the book of Acts of the Apostles essentially consists of the three missionary journeys of Paul, and we're going to encounter this theme over and over again about the rejection of the gospel and how he eventually turns to the Gentiles. 
actually the apostles will end with Paul's own imprisonment in Caesarea, which then he sets sail and he is taken to Rome because he asked to have his case heard by a Roman tribunal. But they travel across then, they go the whole length of the island, St. Luke tells us. This would have taken several months. Because remember, Paul is going into all these towns along the way. He goes into the synagogue. He proclaims the gospel. And if there are a few who will accept it and be baptized, he or the other apostles, for that matter, when they travel about the different parts of the ancient world taking the gospel, have to stay and catechize the people. You just don't go into a place and baptize them in one day and get up and leave the next morning. Part of the whole mystery of baptism is the knowledge that goes with it to understand the mysteries of our faith. So he would have stayed in these places certainly at least a few days, if not weeks, sometimes even months in his missionary journeys. So they're traveling the island from one end to the other. And after going the whole length of the island, they come to Paphos. And they come in contact with a Jewish magician called Bar-Jesus. Now, he is an attendant. He works for the proconsul there, Sergius Paulus. And St. Luke tells us that he was an extremely intelligent man. Not only intelligent, not only smart, but wise. He had a love for the truth. He was open to the truth. He wanted to know the truth and to be able to embrace it. The proconsul summoned Barnabas and Saul. He asked that the gospel be proclaimed to them. He summoned them because he wanted to hear. Perhaps news had already reached him of Saul and Barnabas, and they're preaching the gospel in other parts of the island. So he wanted to hear the word of God, St. Luke writes. But Elymas, the magician, tried to stop them. Why? He says, so as to prevent the proconsul's conversion to the faith. Now, if he converts to the faith, that's going to put an end to Elymas's work as a magician, a sorcerer, his dabbling in the occult, and he doesn't want it. So he, he resorts to, he places himself as an obstacle. He stands in their way. Saul, St. Luke says, whose other name is Paul. This is now when we're introduced, and he will be called Paul from here on out. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, the magician, and said, You utter fraud, you imposter, you son of the devil, you enemy of all uprightness. Paul never minces words when he talks. When he encounters evil or wickedness, he doesn't mince words. He calls things as he sees them. But always there is the call to conversion, to repentance. On the one hand, he is pointing out the death that they are embracing by their current way of life, but he is doing so to call them to repentance. And sometimes he has to hit people hard over the head with his words to get them to wake up from their stupor and realize what it is they're doing. He says, will you not stop twisting the straightforward ways of the Lord? Now he prophesies. Watch, he says, watch what the hand of the Lord will do. He will strike you and you will be blind. As soon as he prophesies it, this is what happens. But notice what Paul says. You will be blind. He is not declaring that he is going to be blind forever. That would be, it would seem that the punishment then is too great. It's punitive and unending. What he says is, you will be blind for a time. And we ask, is this harsh, what Paul is saying? No, in love he does this. He wants Elymas to experience exactly what he experienced, the same grace. 
He wants him to be blind and to suffer in darkness as he suffered so that, so that Elymas can come to the light. He wants for Elymas exactly the grace that he was given from the Lord. He's not being harsh. He is acting in love toward this man. He says, for a time, you will not see the sun. Scripture tells us that instant everything went misty and dark for him, and he groped about to find someone who could lead him by the hand. Not unlike the very experience that Saul had on the road to Damascus. The proconsul, who had watched everything, became a believer. He was much struck by this. Now, we're not led to believe he became a believer out of fear because of this. He already loved the truth. He wanted the truth. But he certainly was amazed at what he saw, at the power behind the Word of God, the power behind the servant of the Lord, the one who speaks the truth. We can't help but recall the different times when God speaks about suffering in the Old Testament and in the New as well. Remember what the Lord reveals through Job. He says there and elsewhere in the Old Testament, blessed is he whom the Lord corrects. Paul will write this in the letter to the Hebrews. Blessed is he whom the Lord corrects. Why is this? Because he who wounds, the Lord reveals of himself. He who wounds is also he who soothes the sore. And the hand that hurts, the hand that hurts is the hand that heals. As the prophet Hosea will tell us, he strikes us in order to bind us up. It's punitive, but it's just for a time. It shocks us, it knocks us down, it startles us, and even, yes, it pains us, but it wakes us up. It makes us realize that we have to change, that we are dead, and that God wills to bring us to life. So he lets us experience that deadness, and it's painful. It's painful. The prophet Hosea says, let us know, he is calling Israel to conversion, let us know, let us strive to know the Lord. He says that he will come, that he will come is as certain as the dawn. Paul says to Elymas, he says, for a time, for a time, Elymas will experience what Saul experienced, that the Lord will come is as certain as the dawn, the prophet Hosea says, and when he comes, he will come as rain from heaven. He will come as a as a springtime rain upon the earth. And so Paul wants Elymas to experience exactly that. St. Paul, we recall, when he writes to the Corinthians later, in the second letter to the Corinthians, he refers to a severe letter he had written before. We have two letters to the Corinthians in Scripture, but we know for a fact that Paul wrote at least three letters to them. One of them was a very severe letter. And what he says in the second letter to the Corinthians is this, because Word had come back to him that his letter very much distressed the Corinthians. It upset them. It struck them down, so to speak. And he finds this out and he says, Though I did distress you by my letter, I don't regret it. He says, And I don't regret it not because you were made to feel distress, but because the distress you did feel brought you to repentance. He said, That is the kind of distress that God approves. He says, you have come to no harm through me. Elymas does not come to any real harm through Paul's words. And he is saying the similar thing in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, you have come to no harm through me, through my letter, through what I said. Keep in mind 
that the distress that you felt is the kind that God wants. He said, it's a distress that leads to repentance, and that repentance leads to salvation without regrets. He said, it's the world's kind of distress that leads to regret. The world's kind of distress that ends in death. This is what Paul knows. This is what he's writing about. This is what the Lord himself is speaking to us about in this. We have to keep in mind that, that sometimes the Lord permits anxiety, distress, suffering, pain in our lives. Pain that is a result of, of bad choices. Pain that's a result of, of sins. God is not being punitive in a strict sense. He is allowing that to call us to conversion and repentance. Sometimes nothing short of that will wake us up and open our hearts up to God's mercy. It humbles us. It makes us experience our own limitations, our frailness, and yes, even experience the evil that's in our hearts, the sin in our hearts. And it should appall us. It should bring us to tears. It certainly did Saul, and it most likely did Elymas. And in the meantime, God uses these moments as lessons in other people's lives. How many down through the age of the church have learned from the example of Saul on the road to Damascus? God has probably saved thousands through the model of Paul, through what he did for Paul in striking him down. Everything that God does, everything that God does is about love and about salvation. And that is what we have to keep in mind as we have to endure the difficulties of life. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George will be covering chapter 13, verse 13, through chapter 14, which include the following three topics. Paul proclaims Christ to the Jews. Second, opposition to Christ and his servant, the church. And third, Paul proclaims Christ to the Gentiles. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions, and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.